1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Hello, I'm Sophia ellis and welcome to Spinning Plates. I am feeling in quite a good mood today. Um, the sun is really beautiful. I know I probably always start chatting to you, telling you about the weather, but it does play a big you know, part in your mood, doesn't it? And also, today is my day off in the week. So this is Sunday, and it's been quite a hectic week. It's been a bit silly in parts. Let me tell you about it. So this week has been Eurovision Week, as in the final was yesterday night. For what it's worth, I wanted the finish entry to win. I love that finish entry. Cha, ja, cha, ja, cha, ja, cha, ja, cha, ja, cha, ja, ja. Yeah. Um, anyway, that is not what I was going to tell you about. I didn't tell you about the fact that I had a couple of jobs I was doing in Liverpool, not least a very, very lovely thing of singing in the Eurovision Village on Friday night, which was awesome. But the I had a, So I'd work on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all in Liverpool. However, I'd also committed, Richard and I had committed, to DJing at our uh, seven-year-old and 11-year-old's primary school for a sort of end-of-sats celebration thing. I don't know. It was during school hours, and we did like a half-hour DJ set, disco, for the reception, then 45 minutes for years one, two, three, 45 minutes, four, five, six. So that was on Friday afternoon. So I went up to Liverpool on Thursday. I came back from Liverpool on Thursday night. Then we DJ'd at the school during the day on Friday. Then I got back in the car, 3.30, as soon as I finished. Pelted it, four hours, 15 minutes. No loo breaks, thank you very much. All the way to Liverpool. Arrived 8.30 outside the Eurovision village. I was on stage in my sequins and all that. 9.10. Yes, it can be done. Um, then stayed the night, finished another bit of work yesterday and then came back in the car just minutes before the final started on the TV. So that's my experience of Eurovision. Uh, While I was up there on Friday, I did bump into May Muller, who is our UK entry, was our UK entry. And I'm very, very fond of May. I've known her for a long time. Her aunt is a very good friend of mine, so I've known her since she was a little girl and I think she did brilliantly. And I know that the UK did not do very well on the scoreboard, but as I said to May myself when I saw her, I think she'd already put in all the hard work and already got the spoils because everybody was so fond of her and the song she was singing was such a big hit. So cheers to you, May Muller, and cheers to Liverpool for hosting such a big Eurovision. Honestly, it was fantastic and the atmosphere was incredible. So that was all really lovely. And then uh, today... It's been a mixture of, like, taking kids to parties and things like that, kind of bobbing about day. But it's beautiful out there. Just got in and it's, like, 21 degrees or something crazy. So that's lovely. And the week ahead is another really exciting one. I've got a festival in Mexico next weekend. I know. Guadalajara. Where shall I head? What shall I do? I'm going to try and pack as much as I can in and I'm not there for very long. Anyway, I am really excited about today's podcast guest, of course. Um, She is someone I've been a fan of for ages. Her name is Hannah Fry. And I'm sure you'll know her already, but if you don't. So she's a maths professor. And I suppose you'd say she's a sort of, what would you say, like a data maths communicator. So she presents TV programmes that involve data and mathematics but it's done in a really fun way. So she did a series with the BBC where she took apart sort of aspects of modern life. So it might be, I don't know, your Alexa or a food delivery app, things like this. And so explain how they work. But she's really open and generous with her wisdom and funny. And I really already liked her before we met. She also presented a really incredible programme all about her experience with ovarian cancer which led her to have a radical hysterectomy when she was only 38 and her children were only two and four. So a very, very big thing to go through. And if you haven't watched that documentary, I really recommend it. It's on iPlayer as well. And yes, yeah, so I went over to her house. Uh, her little girls are now, I'm going to say four and six. Her house is lovely, colourful, like mine, but much, much tidier. And, uh, Yeah, when I turned up, I just had a very strange experience with ASMR on the tube. Do you know what ASMR is? I imagine you do. Even my seven-year-old knows what ASMR is. It's the thing where people do that, like, talking, whispering, and, like, make, like, weird sounds and eat crunchy food, because some people find it pleasurable. But I don't know, you might be like me. I cannot stand the sound of people whispering in adverts. Like, just ban it. I don't want someone whispering in my ear. I don't like it. Anyway, don't worry, that's not what's going to happen to you now. What's gonna to happen to you now is two women having a nice conversation. And I will see you on the other side. Alright, see you later. Buddy. I'm really thrilled to see you today, Hannah.
5: Not as thrilled as I am.
4: <laughs> You're in I've my been, house! I've been really looking forward to coming and talking to you. And just as a total aside, I had such a funny thing happen to me on the tube on the way here. Um, in quite a busy carriage. The man next to me started watching um, ASMR videos with the sound on full. Lovely. So I spent most of the journey listening to someone eating food, like really noisy. (laughs) It was really odd. But he didn't seem at all phased. that we could all hear this loud, noisy eating.
5: I used to, when I got the train quite a lot, I used to, just by chance, have a spare pair of headphones on me that came in handy so much that I always made sure I had them because what you would do is if somebody was watching something really loudly I would go over and rather than being like excuse me can you put headphones in but make it more of like a kindness thing like oh I've got this bare pair of headphones do you need them you'd
4: offer headphones to someone else
5: and they would never take them I've done this genuinely I've done this but it's a device exactly that's exactly. Really clever. Top tip, everyone.
4: Wow, I'm wondering where you put an end to that. Like, there's so many things other people do that are annoying, mm-hmm. and where do I stop with that? Mm-hmm. Like, and see your, um, I don't know, eating your food a bit messily. Like, I've actually got some napkins with me.
5: <laughs> I have done it with a tissue on an aeroplane as well. Really? Like, you, I mean, I, this makes me sound like so much more of a passive-aggressive person than I actually am.
4: <laughs> well, it's disguised as kindness.
5: <laughs> actually, it's just deep irritation of other human beings. Oh,
4: they can be so annoying. They can be. Um let's talk about the here and now what are you up to at the moment what are your current projects
5: well so um i uh finished a series um on bbc2 last year called secret genius and it's just found out that it's been recommissioned yay so about to start it's very filming. good I thank you that. i loved it um yeah i really like it actually because i think that it's um i think science telly has this habit of being like person who knows what they're talking about telling you facts right or telling you things and i what i really wanted to do with that series was was just break that because i think that actually there's so much joyfulness and so much irreverence that can come from this stuff um And then also just the fact that actually the whole idea of the series is that an entire team of people come up with amazing stuff to put me in front of and then just film my reaction. So (laughs) as a life, it's uh, the kind of thing you can go for. Um, So I'm filming the second series of that. And then I have a new Radio 4 show. Um, I haven't decided the title yet. Uh, And um, Rutherford and Fry, which is my long running podcast too.
4: And also the future.
5: Kind of uh, also, cl- there's too many. You're, you're <laughs> quite right. Also, the future. My
4: specialist subject today is you. So yeah, okay. don't worry, I've got you.
5: You have a cheat sheet. Um, yes, that's a big project that I've been doing with Bloomberg. Mm. Um, and it's quite different working for an American company, I tell you. Oh, that. really? Yeah, it's amazing.
4: Production wise, in terms of like how they emphasize things and yeah
5: and setup. support you and uh the intellectual freedom that they give you as well oh, that's good. kind of interesting because i think that it's such a big market that it means that you can go quite niche and still be appealing to a lot of people mm. um whereas i think that when you work for the BBC you know, it's license-payer funded, so you have to make sure that it appeals f- to everybody. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Bloomberg has this freedom that they know that they're, they have this captive audience of, of people who work in banks, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have to shy away from, from really being quite thinky.
4: Okay, well, that's lovely. I like things that are thinky.
5: Mm, thinky is good.
4: <laughs> Thinky's very good. I like, when you're, you know, you're so aware of data and science... Mm. what's it like when you encounter in a casual setting people who think they have a grasp on sort of, you know, pseudoscience? How good are you (laughs) at listening to stuff that you know is essentially bollocks? Um. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Okay, so I actually think I'm okay at it. Mm. And there's a few reasons for that. So the first is that um, mm, I have differing opinions on alternative medicine too members of my immediate family okay um but at the same time i really deeply respect their opinions on it yeah even though we end up coming down on different sides of things um because i think that actually when you talk to somebody who has a different view to you if you put in the effort to work out where you actually disagree i think it's often on much smaller things than you might imagine
4: yeah that's often true
5: so my cousin for example is a homeopath practicing homeopath And both of us agree that, you know, when you go and see a doctor for eight minutes, it's not enough time to really get to the heart of what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And both of us agree that actually your best care is where somebody gets to know you over a long period of time and where you get the consistency of that that sort of interaction. And most of us agree that for... uh, Both of us agree that for a lot of, you know, very minor ailments like rashes and, um, you know, and like scratches and tickles and things, actually turning to pharmaceuticals is often unnecessary and yeah. can be detrimental so I think that you yeah. know we agree on all of those things I think the only place that we disagree is the line at which that crosses over
4: yeah but I, I guess sometimes you might be dismantling something for the sake of being able to dismantle it intellectually whereas actually you might be in some cases derailing a part of what makes a person tick and makes them function and makes them feel good about the world because for most of us we're just trying to Establish some sort of sense of, not control exactly, necessarily, but just an understanding of the world around you that doesn't make you feel like a free-floating chaos. Mm, We've all got different ways of doing that, different approaches. Totally, totally
5: agree. I did this programme last year um, for the BBC, which was about people who had chosen not to be vaccinated. Yeah. And it was controversial. (laughs) Um, but I tried to do the same thing. I went into it. There were seven people who hadn't been vaccinated and they were sharing a house together for a week. And I spent a week with them talking to them about the different aspects of their lives and the reasons why they'd made that decision. Mm. And there was one woman in in their partic- in particular, she was called Vicky. And, um, you know, she's, I think it would, you know she would describe herself as feisty right and i think that that's a good description of her she you know went in and she wanted to make her voice heard hmm. and i you know spent this week talking to her and it wasn't always the easiest of relationships but i think overall i got on well with her but what i thought was really interesting was that again right both of us agreed that the 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 pandemic was bad Both of us thought that it was bad that people died. Both of us agreed that actually the vaccine does have side effects and some people's lives will have been damaged by the vaccine. Yeah. And really, you know, ultimately the only thing that it came down to was how you count whether... A side effect is because of the vaccine or just after it like that's it that's literally the only thing that we disagreed on and then when you hear about her story her history she had um you know i think she broke her back when she was in her 20s and was on really serious pain medication for a really long time and has this this difficulty about you know informed consent, right? Yeah. Like her worldview is totally completely framed because of that. And it doesn't matter if you sit someone like down, like, you know, sit someone like that down, and you say, but five percent of this and twenty three percent, it doesn't matter, no. You because you're you're trying to like use facts to talk about something which is a deeply personal and emotional experience. Yeah, for
4: her. and how you feel about consent? I mean, we're all championing that mainly, aren't completely. we? Completely. I've got two girlfriends, two close friends, and both of them went down of not being vaccinated, and then we would have a chat about it, and then we just sort of agreed to disagree, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, I, to- I understand exactly where you're coming from, and I totally get that idea about it's your body, you know, if you've had that conversation, if you're armed with the facts and you've still decided that's what the path, you know, there's not really much further you can go, actually. Mm. But it's it, it can be tricky when it comes down to personal relationships sometimes when you've got those differences of opinion. I've actually got quite a lot of friends where they've got quite different opinions to me, but I actually feel like it's helped me be less, buy in less to that sort of binary side of like social media where it's like, I'm right, you're wrong. No, I'm right, you're wrong. When actually, if I know people where we've got really big difference of opinion on some of those big, you know, debatable topics, but we're still able to bridge loads of gaps and understand where each other's coming from, it's actually been quite beneficial, I think.
5: I totally agree. I totally agree. There's this cabbie who I use all the time. He, (laughs) like, I see him, sometimes I spend more time with him than my actual family. (laughs) Um, but he is, like, so opposite to me in every possible regard, right? Like, mm. reads the Daily Mail, um, you know, has all of the classic cabbie views, right? Yeah but I just love spending time with him yeah. because he offers this perspective on the world. That I just don't hear from my, you know, like m- all my friends are sort of middle class. Yeah. And I just don't hear the, the the view that he gives me. And I have the best conversations yeah. with him because both of us are coming to those conversations with respect for the other person.
4: Yeah, like, and a smile on your face is probably exactly. as you're having quite a bouncy conversation about these things. Exactly.
5: I mean, I think he's wrong. <laughs>
4: Yeah. I mean, you don't tip him at the end. Uh, Never. (laughs) You still didn't agree with me, but thank you for the ride. (laughs) Four stars. (laughs) Three, actually. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And obviously, my podcast talks about parenting, and I did wonder how your love of data and maths, did any of that apply in your decision to become a mother?
5: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Um, Did it? That's a really interesting question, actually. I've never thought about that. So it's quite I think, a rich topic. It is quite a rich <laughs> topic. I mean, crikey. Um, in terms of the decision, so I do think that I try and live my life according to... I mean, this is so nerdy. You ready for
4: this? I'm so ready. <laughs>
5: I live my life according to a regret minimization model. Okay. Essentially, what you do... I
4: think I might be like that. I didn't term term it that way. Yeah,
5: I mean, look, you can have that (laughs) phrase. You can wear it with a badge of pride. Um, Yeah, essentially what I always try and do is pick the path that I will look back on and regret the least. And so... In a way, it gives you this freedom for... uh, You're kind of untethered from bad decisions then because you made them with the information that you had at the time.
4: Have you always lived like that? I
5: think so, yeah. Certainly since I became an adult, yeah.
4: That's a really helpful way, the perspective of that, because I have a big... I'm very anti the idea of regret. Mm. And I... Funnily enough, I had a girlfriend recently talking about a regret she had about a boyfriend she split up with. Mm. And I was saying, you are the same person in turn... The way you would have made the decision, you have to trust that you were the same person then that you are now. <sighs> totally and if you agree. decided then he wasn't right for you, you can't look back and be like, oh, but now this, that and the other. Because you only had what you had at the time.
5: Completely. And you
4: make the best decision for yourself in that here and now. And it's a really unhelpful little whirlpool to get stuck in with the idea that you now have got this extra information and you should look back and done something else. Um, because so you didn't
5: have that information No, at the time. you didn't. You've got no. trust in yourself. Yeah.
4: Trust in that kernel of the you that's always been you.
5: Totally agree. To have made a
4: decision that you thought was the best thing for yourself.
5: So I think the only additional thing that you know having this label for it as it were Mm. is that in that moment you have that sort of extra process which is right I am making this decision based on the information I have right now and this is the decision that I I think i will regret the least and i trust myself that that's the decision i'm making
4: i love that very much actually
5: yeah so then i think that in terms of having children i do think that there was a bit of regret minimization i do mm. think that it was a, a as much an emotional decision as a rational one which was i i i thought that i would rather look back on my life and uh, and Regret the time that I gave up for children, right? Rather than the children that I gave up for time.
4: Mm-hmm. I love that there's such a like analysis way
5: of looking at it. I know, I'm it's sorry. Really funny. The thing is, you, you cut me open and I just bleed nerd, <laughs> right? I, there's nothing else to me. I, I,
4: I still play Tetris on my old Game Boy from the, from the 80s. I am cut from the same cloth. Um, but I do think it's a big life decision. And I was wondering, because I was thinking in terms of topic, you could you could go very deep on analysing how having a child affects all aspects of your life. Mm. Are you tempted to delve deeper?
5: No. I mean, look, I think that sometimes, sometimes you just got to close your eyes and jump, haven't you?
4: Because <laughs> your ones are little as well; they're only three and six, so you're they still in the, very, the thick of the thick of the you know little children. Life, yeah,
5: busy Although, bit. look, I also think that actually, if you sat down and tried to rationally look at the arguments for and against having children. Then I don't think anyone would ever have them. But because what I think you can't really take into account is just the magnitude of how much they give you. You know, I don't think that. I remember before I had, uh, when I was pregnant with my first kid, I remember there was a a mum that I was talking to and she said, Oh, you just won't, you just won't understand the love. Like you just don't understand it until you've experienced it. And at the time, it got my back up a little bit. And I think it still would now, actually, if I hadn't yet had a child. Um, Because I was like, look, I've loved before. I am capable of imagination. You know, I can conceive of what it will feel like. But the thing is, I I just sort of think that you can't. I just think that you can't understand what it's like to be in a position where you are totally and completely obsessed with a little creature whether they look at you or not right like there's some some days my little my littlest who's like much less snuggly than the eldest um getting a hug from her it's i think it's because she plays hard to get with the hugs you know yeah but like there are some days where i just almost stalk her (laughs) (laughs) It's like, death. Please, be my friend. please, 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 <laughs> please just look at me, right? It's, it's like the most extreme crush.
4: Yeah. Um,
5: and I, I just relate. don't think that you can ever quite take that into account in a, in a rational analysis of whether to be a parent or not.
4: No, and I think that person saying that to you is like a, sort of like a big no-no, because for anyone that either can't or chooses not to become a parent... It's like a thing that you just don't want anyone to have in their head is something. The idea of anyone passing on to someone else, if this doesn't happen, you're going to miss out on a really big life experience. It's just like a a line you don't really cross. So I would get my back up too, because it's like, how could you say that? However, once you have a child, it's like your heart does get sort of turned inside out a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I think if I'm brutally honest, if it was a kind of deathbed moment for me, I think being a good mum w- would be enough for me if that's all I've managed to do. Which is kind of crazy, really. Because yeah. there's lots of other things I want to get on with and I hope I'm doing. But if I had to choose one thing, I think I'd choose that.
5: Oh, gosh. Now I'm thinking about what I, whether I would as well. <laughs> and I feel slightly I feel guilty
4: that I don't know if I would. <laughs> I think it's just because of the responsibility, really. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like you've got these people and you're trying to... Shape them. Yeah, and like, I think of myself as the flippers on a pinball machine a little bit. Like, that, the ball's doing whatever it'll do, and I'm just trying to go, no, oh, maybe try that way, oh, not that way, oh, and, yeah. and just trying to, like, counter wherever I can. Oh, God, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
5: And There's one description of... Uh, this was specifically about having a teenage daughter, which I have not yet got to that mm. point. Um, but it was that when you have a teenage daughter, you have to be the sides of a swimming pool. So you are surrounding them and supporting them, but you have to let them go off and swim yeah. and then be there when they want to come back to the site, but they've got to go off and learn how to swim themselves, you know, and I just yes. I thought that was really a lovely idea.
4: That is a lovely idea. I like the fact that it includes a bit of risk and independence. Mm,
5: totally. Um
4: one of the really good bits of advice I was given when I started the podcast actually was from Catelyn Moran who said when they're teenagers you have to turn yourself into a bit of a friendly cow Mm. sort of mooing at them gently so basically you actually know a lot of what is going on and you're kind of in your head working out how to problem solve and help them but when you approach them because they're at this point where they're doing such changes Mm -hmm. neurologically in terms of independence and breaking away from you the way to keep them open and communicative is to sort of make yourself a little bit daft in their presence so that you're regarded as sort of a friendly, you know, how was your day? <laughs> G- you know what I mean? Gentle, bovine, totally. warm, soft, but totally. not kind of going, yeah. I hear what you say, but actually, I had a similar thing happen when I was 16, and this is what I did. And yeah. let me, well, you say that, but that's ridiculous because you're, this, you're 14 yeah. and blah, 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 because the little barriers can come up and then has gone.
5: I'm going to remember that so, one. So
4: friendly cow by the side of a pool um,
5: is <laughs> i for here. I mean, the things that I've mostly had to deal with so far are not on that same level but they have involved a friendly cow. Um, so, <laughs> so, my eldest, she really struggled to give up a bottle of milk at bedtime she really just she used it for comfort she just really wanted it a lot anyway we kind of (laughs) we told her that it it was going to stop on this day and we built it up and then we said you know this um like gonna give the bottles off and send them off in the post and all of the normal stuff Mm -hmm. but it still wouldn't work so what was (laughs) my um my then husband would go into a different room and call through and pretend to be the friendly cow and say that she just didn't have any milk left. <laughs> just like <laughs> like these visceral images of him like hiding in a room in the house, just doing an impression of a cow
4: oh my on goodness. the phone. But like mm, thank you yeah, for the yes, box exactly, of milk.
5: Exactly. Love it. I'm so sorry, I can't give you any more milk, but you know.
4: <laughs> That's really sweet. Did it work?
5: I mean, she doesn't drink milk now, so eventually, eventually we broke her.
4: Yeah, and when she's older, we be like, suddenly, like, what happened to that? There was this cow that <laughs> <laughs> was that real? You're like, um,
0: <laughs> you. yeah, I'm gonna embody that cow <laughs> when she's fairy, 14, fun, 14 fun, to 17. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project.
4: And did you always, I mean, were you always going to keep working? Was was work, going back to work with babies, everything you thought about, was it just a, of course I'll work?
5: Yeah, so, hmm, so this was a... Um, it was more something that happened um, automatically rather than something that I definitely wanted to do.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: But then again, at the same time, I also... I'm not very good at stopping. So I don't know if I ever would have been able to not. But my my husband was, um, he was working as a sports writer. And this was just like, you know, more and more things went digital and uh, everybody was being put freelance and so on. And this was at the same time that my career was really taking off. So as his work declined, mine increased. So it just made sense that he would be the main carer. And as a result of that, I did go back to work, I think, crazily quickly. Um, and looking back, I do think, I mean, look, regret minimization, but you've got to take into account, you know, postpartum hormones, which yeah. are all over the place. And I did go back to work too, too quickly for both of them, I think.
4: It's funny how you put yourself under that pressure sometimes, mm. especially with my second, actually. I was like, well, I've already done this once, so I should be able to do this really quickly now. How quickly did you go back? Um... It won't sound that quick, but I had him early. So he was born nine weeks early, Mm -hmm. and my manager came to see me when I was in hospital, recovering from, this was my second C-section, and he said, great news, in ten weeks you'll be filming a video for the new single. And I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. So I guess my work is a bit fluid, because it's not like I go back into an office, it's not like I have to be there nine to five, but I did find myself doing a dance video Oh gosh! with my friend, one of my old really old school friends, there as a milk monitor. So she would come and oh tell me every three hours when I had to go and express. And the whole crew would sort of stop. And I was in heels, mini skirt, like little belt thing, uh, feeling really weird doing a dance routine. And then afterwards, they like slightly stretched the video image to make me look <gasps> slimmer. And I've regretted that ever since, actually. I think that was a really bad decision. And I should have been a bit... Stronger in myself, but I don't think you're capable
5: of being. I mean, look, I I feel the same way about certain things that I did around that time. Mm. Um, and actually, one of the things was that the 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 shame almost maybe shame's the wrong word, but I so I went back to filming after um, I was filming a, a, a series that was maybe eight weeks after my first baby, and um, I didn't have somebody coming in and saying it's time to pump. Mm. And so as a result my milk just completely dried up.
4: Well, that's quite a traumatic. Entry, I tried, right like
5: I tried to do it, but it's really hard. Really hard. Really hard to be like, okay, everybody, everyone down tools, you've got to sit here and wait no, while I, I just go off. It's really, it's very, and as progressive as the world is, you know, sitting there with a freaking... I know. Th- I mean, talk about being a cow, right?
4: Yes, oh my gosh, yes. it's all, all roads are going to lead to cows Not today. good. <laughs> <laughs> I think as well, um, so I've quite often found myself particularly the older I've got and the younger everybody else that I meet on like sets and stuff they're still very young and most of them have not had kids and mm. that's just not even a part of their you know way of thinking yet so that me being like oh I need to stop and do this or kids stuff is a bit like just met with a bit of a mm. you know I'm sure that it's a big deal for you but I don't really understand why you're telling yeah. me the kind of thing and I think um yeah, it's hard to give that space sometimes in a professional thing, particularly if in yourself you're thinking, okay, it's eight weeks and I want to, I've got this great opportunity to film this series yeah. and I'm just going to get through it. And I really feel for you the milk thing because I think sometimes when you've had a new baby and you're away from them, that is your big connecting thing
2: totally it's
4: like a thing that reminds you i have i am just a new mum and i have just had a baby and
5: yeah
2: it
4: keeps you feeling somewhere connected with them even when you're apart
5: but i think that that's why you need people to step in and protect you i think that in those moments actually when you're trying to be everything for everyone actually i think you need somebody else to step in and just take care of you you know, for yourself to remind you that actually your experience in that time is more important than anything else. And are
4: you good at listening to that if you get that person saying, I mean, I know I'm pretty crap at that, actually. I suppose, the, and also the regret minimization. It's still amazing to do a TV thing and that's really exciting to do those. And I that... didn't need to
5: do it. I didn't need <laughs> did to you do not? it. I did not need to do it. I didn't even like it.
4: Oh, well, in that case... Sorry. I <laughs> know, oh, exactly. <laughs> the thing is, that Maybe you learned something there, too. Did you
5: know. notice, though, when you got pregnant, mm. did people kind of drop you?
4: I think for me, well, the first couple of babies were more just an alien thing because I was the only one from my girlfriend's who'd had a baby then. So I had my first two, not particularly young, but both in my 20s, and it was just not a stage that anyone else was going through at that time. Mm. So I wouldn't say it's that I got dropped. Well, actually, professionally, I think mm. it affected me a lot, yes. Mm. Um, personally, no, it's all cool, but, but professionally... This was So my first two were when I was still, you know, pop, dance and trying to make music that would be played on Radio 1 and it was just not... I just felt like being a mum was just not um, compatible with that at all. I think things have changed... And this is like nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. I think things have changed a lot. Um, but then I felt like being a mum was a really frumpy thing to do to my career, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. And I, I think that's probably why I spent a long time... Recalibrating. How how is it going to work for me? How how did I feel about being selfish about my work? How was I going to push myself? What opportunities did I have? How to keep the boulder moving, basically? Because sometimes it does feel like that, like this big yeah stone. You got to keep the momentum, otherwise oh, totally. just grounds totally. to a halt. And I wouldn't. I knew I wanted to keep working because I didn't feel like me without work. Is part of who I am. I I love my work very much. So I think I had to be a bit selfish, really. But I think it took me years to. Truly, like, more at peace with it. When you say it's 100% there, actually, probably. Did you... The
5: third, fourth, and fifth time round? did mm. you get it more right?
4: Yes. I actually enjoyed that a lot more, mm. and I felt better about it. And um, with my fifth, so I had him at 39, I felt like it was a bit of a superpower almost. Mm. I felt really great like i'm doing things i love and i've and i'm pregnant and woohoo i think the happy hormones were there for that
5: <laughs> that was um that was always sort of my plan so i know that you know talking about regret minimization was that i knew that i was doing this in the t- at the time i knew i was going back earlier than i wanted to but in my head i had always because i was one of 3 right so i had two sisters um and uh then i had two girls and in my head it was always like okay i'm going to just get the point where this boulder is moving and rolling and then i'm going to have the third and the third will be the time when i get to really enjoy it when i get to sit down and drink a cup of tea and like i mean i know this sounds really sad but like because um my partner was 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 the main carer just really stupid things like Pushing a pram to Tesco's. Like, I didn't really get to do that. Mm. You know, and I know that sounds so strange. Like, obviously, you know, every night I would be, like, feeding her and cuddling both of them and, you know, putting them to bed and playing with them and all of that stuff. But just the really mundane stuff. Like, you'll see over there, I have this um, poem on my wall. That's about cutting an orange open and sharing it with your two kids, which is just so mundane. But it's, like, the really mundane stuff. I just never got to do it. Yes. And then that was always my plan was like, wait a few years and then you get your chance. And then unfortunately, <laughs> that was... Uh, life um, had other plans. Life had other plans, yeah.
4: But then, well, firstly, I would say, if it reassures you at all, I don't feel like I did actually do any of that any better with any of the babies You didn't
5: all. cut any oranges?
4: <laughs> I've still not done a cutting orange sharing it thing. <laughs> I should do that. But the... I think the ability to be in the moment and take all the best bit from baby, partly I think I'm actually, if I'm totally honest, I think I like baby bit, but I don't think I'm brilliant at that bit of childhood, Mm -hmm. actually. And I've sort of realized this and acknowledged that that's okay. Because the more kids I have, people go, oh, you must really love babies. And I'm like, that's really not what it's about. I think I'm better when they get a bit older. Mm -hmm. Three plus. I love all the crazy conversations. I love the, like, little, you know, satellites you can go off on. So... I don't know if you necessarily would be able to get better, but secondly, I mean, cut yourself some slack, Hannah. I mean, you might have had a plan, but that's you know that's not how life works. I know, I know. And also, what you've done is given yourself... I mean, I love the fact that you're now doing a show called The Future with Hannah Fry, whereas two years ago, you were making a documentary that questioned all of that.
5: Yes, this is true.
4: You know, like, that's... That's huge. Mm-hmm. And by the way, your documentary where you talk about your cancer and diagnosis and the way people handle diagnosis and the options they have, I've watched it more than once. I recommend it to billions of people. I think it's brilliant. Thank you. Have you been able to watch it since? Uh, yeah. You have. Okay, that's, cool. that's quite impressive because I'd imagine it goes back to a very Dark raw place.
5: Yeah. So this is, um, uh, when I was 36, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And, um, when it first started, the, well, okay, I started, like, writing a diary, which I think a lot of people do. It's very therapeutic. And then, just because of my job, um, and also because, you know, it's just quicker, then I started just recording little bits and pieces. And so, initially, the footage that I was capturing was never intended to do anything or be anywhere. And then I have a friend who, um makes documentaries really beautiful documentaries uh and i spoke to him i called him and he was like he kind of persuaded me to take it much more seriously to take the filming much more seriously um so there are i would say there are bits of footage um which i haven't watched which are not in the film
4: Mm. which
5: i think are um i don't know if i'll ever watch them again i don't think i need need to. to
4: You don't need to go back um, to
5: that. But in terms of the bits of the film, the reason why I can watch it still is because, for me, it wasn't a film about me. It was never supposed to be a film about me, or at least in my mind it wasn't. Mm. It, was the, it was a film that included some of my footage because that gave me permission to really talk about cancer care in this country. Yeah. And the way in which we make our decisions about our
4: own lives. Which is so fascinating. Right, it's so fascinating, mm. because cancer's such a it's so loaded in your head, and everything, even though you might have data that would suggest that in order to take a really radical approach, you might be left with a number of lifelong consequences. I think most people's instinct is so emotionally driven mm-hmm. just to get that gone, mm-hmm. get that gone but i found so many aspects of the conversations you were having with people so thought provoking whether it be from researchers who say sometimes that screening might highlight someone who could have actually been living alongside cancer for a long time and not have, not even needed to go through that path to people who've had chemotherapy and other treatments that they didn't necessarily need to have because it didn't actually affect the outcome of their particular prognosis at all. all. Mm -hmm. In fact, it affects a really tiny amount of people Mm -hmm. in a positive way, which is extraordinary. But also you are so, so brave when you're talking to the people that are going through cancer where it's got more to the palliative stage and you ask them really brave questions. And I think that's really brilliant. I've noticed that across the board, what you do. You're really good at being quite unflinching when you're talking about topics. Mm. And you're unflinching with talking about your own diagnosis too. And there's a bit in it where you talk about being a fork in the road. Mm. A matter of if a few cancer cells are found in the wrong place, you go one way and if it, if you get rid of it or you go another. Do you feel since then that you're living in the path of the person where it worked out well and there's like another Hannah Fry out somewhere who had a different diagnosis, like different oh, outcome? Yeah.
5: Oh yeah, it's crazy, isn't it's, it? It's it's just so much luck involved in all of this. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's just a roll of the dice, you know. Like, there was one thing actually, because mine was caught on a smear test, but actually, I had not gone to that smear test appointment for a number of months. So the letter had originally come through in I think February, and I didn't end up going until November. And it was you know, I don't know how it is in in your house, right, but like when I got the sw- the, the smear test letter, it wasn't like right, emergency stations, everybody drop everything right yeah, It was just like, thing like, you oh, have to do. pop it on the list, you know yeah, and so actually, I had a lot of guilt for a long time, um because i couldn't help but in my mind play over that idea of like what if i what if i'd gone when i'd got the letter you know when i got the letter first why didn't i go because if i'd gone then then it wouldn't maybe it wouldn't have turned into cancer yet maybe i wouldn't have had to have you know all the treatment i had maybe i wouldn't have had the long-term repercussions of it and so on and so on um but actually i ended up having a conversation with margaret mccartney a doctor she's in the film she's the one who's talking about screening
4: this woman from the Scottish
5: lady. The Scottish yeah. She's incredible, this woman. And she just said something that immediately just set me free of all of this guilt. Um, and she said, okay, sure, you could have gone in February. But what if in February, actually, they hadn't found anything? What if, n- yeah. what, if what if everything had happened between February and November? Yeah. And you'd gone and had a clear test, and then they would have put you on the three-year, right? You would have been back in three years, and then you definitely would have died. And I think that's it. It's like with all of this stuff, I do think as a society, we have this sort of, this idea that it's somehow women's fault, right? Or, or somehow you have some ownership of this. So, you know, your cancer's like, you know, Jade Goody, when Jade Goody died, oh, yeah. there was a lot of this conversation about it. But you know, it's just not, it's just dumb luck, all of it. It's dumb luck to pick it up in the first place. It's dumb luck to be, to be you know, Uh, in a good enough position that they could remove it there is nothing like there's that phrase right there but by the grace of god go Mm. i and it's just all of it is just dumb luck
4: it's just just so um it's so hard to get your head around
5: but i find that quite freeing
4: and when she said that about if you'd gone in february it could have been all clear and then did you get a sort of shiver go through your whole body of like oh yeah that could have been yeah
5: totally totally but she said that she you know she gives talks at conferences and she said that she once had a, a guy come up to her um whose wife had died from cervical cancer and had left them um with a very young son and he was in floods of tears and he was like you've just you know all of this time i've been angry with her i've been angry with her and it's just i was wrong like it's just not it's just not But I think this is, you know, of all of the things of... I do feel like very acutely the sort of fragility of life. And I think that what happens is because we very reasonably can expect to live until our 70s or 80s now hmm. you know it's really only been a couple of generations where death has not been a common part of life yeah and i think that actually we get to walk around for a lot of our lives sort of pretending that we're immortal
4: 100 percent, i agree with that yes
5: and you know cancer is really there are very few things left which can get anyone at any time, whoever they are. You know, the vast majority of diseases and illnesses that, that certainly that are, that are common, are, we've kind of like got on top of them. Cancer is really the last one. Yeah. And so I, I do kind of think that because we... Uh, we, we, we're sort of so convinced ourselves that we're immortal that anything that, that shakes us from that path, we are, as you say, get rid of it, get it out of me. I don't want to be anywhere near it. Yeah, and, and kind of approach it with fear. And I do think that actually, I'm saying all of this stuff about the fragility of life as though it's a really negative thing, but actually... I do find the whole idea very freeing.
4: Yeah, and it's also kind of reassuring to remember that because yeah. in previous generations, they've had to deal with all manner of things happening and all sorts of instability. And actually, I heard... Um, I was researching this uh, potential um, podcast guest, actually. She's a, a death doula, so her job mm-hmm. is to sort of support people when they're going through the process of dying. And she was this the beginning of this conversation I saw have was all about that, about how we sort of treat death like, oh, well, if I just avoid this, that and the other, I can keep going indefinitely in mm-hmm. that direction. And mm-hmm. then you sort of not really, um, as you say, we've kind of allowed ourselves to think that death is something you can kind of avoid as long as you don't tread on the cracks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and also with cancer, it's actually as well, not always something that is the death sentence. There's also mm-hmm. lots of ways people of can live alongside it and manage things. Um have you did you have good support with the emotional side of what you experienced
5: yeah I did I had this amazing therapist oh my gosh she was so incredible I loved her so much (laughs) the only thing is after about 12 weeks or something I found out she lives on my road
4: no way (laughs) Oh God, that's
5: crazy. And then I tried to, and I just couldn't keep, I couldn't keep her too much. Like you like on the Zoom to her like solving your eyes and then you just bump into her in the park with her dog <laughs> and be like, oh God. Oh, God. Oh, but I loved her so much. So literally, anytime the therapist, the word therapist comes up, I'm like, you have to go to her, right? So like, I've said yeah. about five people. You're given a go good her. business, but yeah. you had to God.
4: withdraw from the relationship, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, sometimes with therapists, you're not really supposed to acknowledge each other. Right? I We're know, but about. then
5: it was just weird. It's like, I mean, <laughs> she knows, she knows where all the bodies are buried.
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, she does. Well, I th- I'm glad you had that support because I think the emotional fallout of all of that must have been huge. And I did wonder as well, because you went towards, um, you know, reading all the books, was it reassuring to know that colleagues and other people in the same field as you had gone before you mm. to do the research, to look through the data, to analyse the options?
5: Yeah, but I mean, no one knows what they're doing. I mean, no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think, like, I, it, it, science is the closest that we come to knowing what we're doing. Mm. But, I mean, it's it's still... I think it's the uncertainty. I think that you instinctively in that moment, you just want an answer. You just want, tell me what the answer is. um, Tell me what to do. Tell me everything that's going to, is going to be okay. Mm. And, and so that's what I found that I was looking for. When I was looking at the statistics, it was like, giving the answer, giving the answer, what's going to happen to me? Where do I fit on this curve? And you know, the answer just isn't there. Like there isn't, you don't know. There's no way to know, um, and I think that actually accepting some of that uncertainty was very difficult.
4: So difficult. That's probably the like the last thing you want to do is accept an unknown. Mm. And that's what sometimes when you were talking to the two people who had different approaches to their coping with the you know the, when their options were radically reduced, mm. and you had that one chap who decided, okay, I'm going to stop all treatment and I'm going to go cycling with my little boy and we're going to do these things together, and then the other lady who was like, no, I'm going to do. Everything I can, if it just gives me a little bit more time. Mm. And that was really, I did find a lot of, I'm sure everybody who watches will be just thinking, what would I do? What's the value you place on time? What's the value you place on time when I'm feeling well versus time when I'm longer time but not feeling very well? Yeah, And it's so bespoke, all those things. Everybody's totally. got their own take on that.
5: Totally, and that's it. I think there isn't a right answer. There isn't a right answer because it, it has to be that the person going through this is totally front and centre of that decision yeah. and, and works out what's right for them. Um, and Rob, actually, the, the, the guy who decided to decline further treatment, I mean, honestly, I think it was such a profound experience meeting him. Yeah. Um, I think it was genuinely like the, the the sort of dignity and strength of character that he had to say i accept that i'm going to die obviously i don't want to but i want every day to mean something yeah
4: um
5: and i don't want to spend it in a hospital it was just honestly such a powerful encounter very powerful mm.
4: and so in the documentary where you say this is a life-changing experience like now this is profound you know this is going to change the rest of my life so what's where do you find your relationship with that experience now how do you feel about it now
5: so there was um at the time right when i got my diagnosis i have this cousin irish cousin and uh, i was on the phone to her and she says oh <laughs> one day i hope you'll see the gift of it right
4: <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> you I mean, don't need cancer to <laughs> know that you love your family and your friends and like, being
5: alive, do you? Like, I mean, but it's just, like, don't say, you know, just don't say, just never say that to someone who's just got cancer. But the thing is, is that now I am out on the other side of mm. it, I actually kind of do see what she means. Like, I'll be honest with you, if you said there's a big button right here, and if you if you press it, then you can undo all of it. You can go back in time and never have had it. I don't think I would press it.
4: Oh.
5: Which is, I know that that's a massive statement. And I'm also aware that I'm saying this from the fortunate position that actually my long-term conditions that i have left with are manageable. I have, you know, I've been cancer-free for two years. And so I, I have, like, there's a lot of luck involved in me being able to say that at all. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that I look at videos now of myself, the stuff that I was filming, the stuff I was doing before I had cancer, and I just look so much smaller Like, I don't mean smaller physically. I just mean, like, my whole character was just, I think, constrained by what I wanted the world to think of me or what I wanted to be for other people or, you know, the worries and concerns that I had about maybe I wasn't good enough this, maybe I should act more like this, maybe I should be more like this, you know, just not just on camera, but in everything, in every encounter I had, mm-hmm. I was just sort of trying to walk this tightrope that, that I think lots of women find themselves on, of, right, don't be too bossy, don't be too meek, don't be too this, don't be too that. And I think that actually what's happened is all of that has just gone. It's gone. And now I'm like, look, I only have one way of being. And if this isn't enough, then go look somewhere else, because I don't have anything else for you. And it I, it's so freeing. I can't describe it to you.
4: That sounds incredible. Yeah. That sounds like everything I'm striving for, actually. I feeling. wouldn't
5: recommend it as a way to get there. <laughs> Maybe just have a bit more. Do you want a number of a therapist?
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only if she's local to here. <laughs> Maybe on this road. <laughs> um, well, I think that's brilliant. And I've also noticed that you've got so much playfulness around what you do. And I wonder... In your family life, were academics and being funny with it always quite prized? Those two things that were always related. What, as a kid? Yeah. No. No. Neither. (laughs) Neither? Oh, no. Well, well done. (laughs) Uniting them and living them.
5: (laughs) No. No, neither.
4: But I don't know, maybe...
5: Okay, so my dad, he works in a factory. He made hydraulic lifts for trucks, right? My Mm -hmm. mum didn't work. So we're from like a very working class family. I think everyone assumes I'm really posh and I'm not. Um, and so, you know, my, me and my sister is the first of our family to go to university. Uh, there was no expectations on us at all to be Did all of you go to uni? We did, okay. yeah. Um, but my mum was really, she just was very, um, insistent about education mm. and I think, I've thought about this quite a lot because she was insisting about education but without any expectations that we'd be anything, right? Yeah. And I think it was just because she's Catholic and life should be suffering.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's the summer holidays, here's some math text for
5: you. (laughs) Quite literally, yeah, exactly. Um, But I think that actually in a lot of ways, maybe because I didn't have a really, you know... I didn't go to a posh school. I don't know any Latin. Like I didn't freaking learn all the ancient Greek words for. I don't know. You know when you go into like places with posh people and they're yeah. like, "Oh, Icarus it wasn't, blah," and it's like I don't know. Lessons. I genuinely don't know. No, no, no optional heart lessons. <laughs> none of that. No. And so I think that maybe in part because um, I just don't get a lot of women. they are big gaps in my education. Um, I think it just means maybe inevitably that I just find it, uh, find a lot of amusement in it, you know, that maybe I wouldn't if if I'd been a bit more institutionalised.
4: But that's good, though. I think you can have fun in the topic, especially because science can have an image of being quite dry and maths. But if you're having fun and being playful, it actually breaks the seal for so many people. Mm -hmm. Is it right you go into presenting through doing like a uni stand-up thing that's true (laughs) that's crazy how was your? what was your stand-up material that's like that's actually my anxiety dream if i'm watching a comic Uh
5: uh-huh
4: i feel like i have to have a joke prepared into my in my head in case i accidentally quantum leap into their body and have to finish the set (laughs) so
5: yeah yeah. Um, well well done for doing it (laughs) I I sort of think that actually, when you watch a lot of comics, I've really thought this about watching panel shows, when you watch them really carefully and, and, um, I don't know, over analyse them, as I I tend to, then um, what a lot of people are saying on there is no funnier than what everyone comes up with in the pub. Yeah. You know, like a group of friends who are just having a laugh with each other. It's, it's, It's really, I think a lot of it is that quality. But the difference is that it's people who are, who have worked out how to get themselves in that state of mind mm-hmm. in that really stressful environment.
4: Yes. It's so true, actually, and confidence of it. And also, I think if you if you know someone's a comedian, you're kind of open to the kind of,
2: they're mm. probably going to make me
4: laugh. Yeah. And so, some people are just quite funny in how they deliver things. But also, I think humour is really disarming and lovely and it can be really charming. And I think that, like, for me, it can break open lots of things. So I think it's a great sort of... Intellectual lubricant, really. Totally agree.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but I also think actually specifically with science, I think the thing that I worked out a little while ago is that when you make a big science show, you're not selling fact or information or knowledge. This is what Brian Brian Cox has worked out so perfectly, is that he's selling an experience... When you watch a Brian Cox show, what, what you're doing is you're having the feeling of your brain being expanded. Yes. Just for that period of time. Yeah. And then you go along with him. It's just at the very edge of what you can imagine. Yeah. What your brain can handle. And then right at the end of it, it's like, okay, what did he talk about? It's like, no idea. No <sighs> You know what I mean? All of it's gone. Immediately it's <laughs> gone. But during that hour, you feel as though you are exploring the cosmos with the limits of what human mind can do and I think the thing is is that space you've got kind of an advantage with space right because yeah. everybody has looked up and wondered what's yeah, out there it's
4: a democratic
5: yeah, place totally, to go I mean, totally. we all go there and you cannot do that with maths believe me right because
4: even though it's part of everybody's everyday all the time
5: but it's not an enjoyable part of people's everyday. I, like I mean, look, me, look. I mean, frankly, me too. Yeah. Um, but I think that you can. You just generally can't do that with something that was a subject at school. Mm. And so I think then, if you need to turn it into an experience, then I think that humour is really the the very first place you can start. It yes. seems so obvious to me because it's like let's go and look at the. the totally bonkers things that people are doing mm-hmm. you know i don't know i was reading this thing this morning about someone trying to trick oysters into thinking that the tide was at a different time right like okay. coming up with the experience of that, that mm-hmm. you know i mean how ridiculous the idea that you've got like <laughs> people sitting around working out how to trick an oyster i just i think there's just <laughs> something so lovely about that um but i think that that's that the way that you have to do it is like take people in on board them with the 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 ridiculousness of it and that's I think how you turn it into what feels like an experience
4: well firstly I think you completely do that too I think when I'm watching your shows and you're or I've seen you on stage doing things my brain has that thing of feeling bigger Um, I think uh, secondly all my favourite educators people on TV I think people I enjoy watching they always have a generosity about the information they're trying to impart that is never superior. Mm. It's always Mm. going, come on this journey with me, come on this ride, sit next to me, isn't this incredible? And that's infectious. And thirdly, at the end of your TED Talk, that kind of was a really pivotal thing for you where you did a TED Talk about the maths of dating, the sentence you end on, which I think is a brilliant sentence, is very revealing about you, I think, where you said, now that I've talked you through the the maths of love, I hope that you have a love for maths. And I'm like... (laughs) There, there she is. Like I loved it. It works. It's so neat. But also it's like you going, look, I've done all of this for you in a very populist way. Just so a little part of you might come a little bit towards me. I love me have
5: three. If you have three words at the end, i thank you. <laughs>
4: exactly. I just thought that's lovely. Well, if we can bring it back to your daughters. So... How, do you ever apply any of your sort of uh, mathematical data analysis to how they are at all when they're at home? Because I do think it's quite a fascinating age when they're small and how people learn. It must be quite fascinating for you to see the, the sponge in action. Mm.
5: Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then, yeah, I mean, I think if you were like a neuroscientist, mm. having your own children, oh man, it'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Experiment. Um, there are some things that I do with them. Um, um, I use a little bit of game theory to make them behave sometimes. Okay, tell um, me more. So, so the thing is, is that you can't just say to your kids, like, oh, um, if you don't stop jumping up and down the sofa, then I'm going to cancel the holiday, right? Because then they, they know you're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So you have to make what's known in game theory as a credible threat. Yes. Um, and, um, essentially, you have to create pick something that um, that you know that they know that you will carry out so for example yeah. if you don't stop jumping up and down the sofa then um on tomorrow we're going to go to the art gallery and i'm going to make you come around the art gallery with me all day and as long as they know that you love going to the art gallery and they really hate it then yeah. it's credible. yeah um i mean that's kind of like level one
4: but i do think that thing of you has to be a threat that is realistic because sometimes you'll say something like if you're doing that i'm not going to take you to that party and then the party might be like in a week's time, right. and of course Tasty. you're going to take me to that
5: party. Of course you are. So it was course empty you are. threat. Exactly. Mm. But the best of all is, yeah. um, is where you uh, create something called a precondition. So essentially, the act of you saying the threat means that the threat has to be true. Um, and essentially, what you could do is, uh, if you've got two children, useful, mm. um, uh, then you can say, right, um, the next one of you to jump on the sofa, the other one gets to pick what we watch on TV, for the rest of the week. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to police each other, right? You know, yeah. that, you know that guaranteed. Yes. And so, I mean, basically they're partying in your hands. Okay. And thus, I have the best behaved children in all of the world and know that they never argue. They never do anything <laughs> naughty ever.
4: That is so they're good. Honest,
5: oh, yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> well done. Well, no. Cracked
4: <laughs> <it>. <laughs> If only I'd heard this 19 years ago. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to ever quite work out with mine. Uh, I think I need to try hard. <laughs> I think I'm a pushover. I literally stood at the doorstep this morning as I waved my eldest off to school, complaining about how his slightly younger brother had managed to negotiate a day off school. Mm. And I literally stood on the doorstep at like 7.30 in the morning saying to Sonny, why am I so weak? I didn't mean to be so weak as I waved him goodbye. <laughs> I just thought I'd have a little yeah. bit more backbone. Yeah. It's really tiring, though, being cross and then, co- car- like, carrying out the consequence. I know. Especially if it has a negative effect on you, like, oh, you're not going to be able to do X, Y, Z. What I'm trying to do now is operate. I saw, like, one of those little, like, pitched things on, like, Facebook or something where it's saying, rather than a kind of, if you do that, then you are not bad, you say, if you want to be able to continue doing such and such, you have to do that. Or if if you agree to stop jumping on the sofa then you can choose another cartoon, if you like. Mm. So make it, like, positive... Yeah. It's all just stuff. I know. I think if you watched in, like, real time, like, if you could, like, do a sort of time-lapse of my parenting, it's just me going round and round in circles.
5: But the thing is, I think that there's so (laughs) many different things, right? There's so many different things that work, but they don't work reliably, consistently, every single time, right? So, you know, the jumping on the sofa is like, okay... There's some stuff where it says, okay, you clearly have a a, a desire to jump. Hey, guys, should we go to the trampoline park, right? (laughs) You know, okay, sure, sometimes that's going to work. And then, but then also like, you know, the distraction of like, who wants to go and make cakes, you know, whatever, right? Or or like, if you do this, I will give you this. I mean, all of those things at some time or another will work and at some time or another will not work.
4: Because they are just people, and sometimes you feel like you've given birth to like a. A project or something and it's not that, they're just little people. Have you ever tried Pretend Crying?
5: Me pretend crying. Yeah, I've
4: done that. Tactical cry. Yeah. Shit. Or cry, maybe yours are a bit young, it works better on my older ones. No,
5: but I tell you what, I did do that was actually <laughs> a complete, complete stroke of genius by me. Um, was when my eldest was about two, I told her that when she tells a lie, a light shines out of her eyes that only her mum and dad can see. <laughs> and so, what she would do is terrifying and in, brilliant, she would come in. And um, she would, when she was lying, she'd come into the room with her arm over her face. I mean. <laughs> and then, and even now, and actually, okay, so I mean, it's maybe a little bit cruel. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that actually I actually have a really good relationship with her. And even now, she's six now, um, when something happens and uh, she wants to, you know, she wants me to really believe her. She'll say, "Look in my eyes," and then I, I know that, like, if she's saying that to Aww. me, I just know it's going to be true. That's but it actually. means that we have like this real kind of relationship of trust. Mm. Um, she trusts based, like, based
4: on a <laughs> lie. <Exactly. laughs> <laughs> 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 it's fine.
5: It's definitely
4: fine. <laughs> That's brilliant. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm I'm going to leave you very soon because I feel like I've explored so much. I I did say to producer Claire just before we started recording when I was standing outside, I was like, I have to be careful because I think I could talk to you for the whole time just on something really niche. I could have gone very deep on any number of things because I find so much of what you explore really speaks my language. I get very excited about it. But I want to go back just finally. might be a bit of a big question, really, but you said you feel... Like something in you has shifted, and you've you've got this new fearlessness, and you're bigger in yourself, mm-hmm. so I wondered how that's affected what you want to do next, really Oh gosh I mean there's, there's such a broad horizon i think I think though that it's
5: um I, I, to be honest i've never really had any big ambitions. I know that that sounds. I just like doing stuff that is good that's it Mm -hmm. that's all it is so i think as well as regret minimization i am uh what i think is sometimes called being micro ambitious okay so as in i don't have this grand plan i don't have a big like and then i want to do this there's no sort of five-year goals Mm -hmm. it's just about seizing opportunities as they arrive and making the absolute most that i possibly can out of every single thing that i have the chance to do and that i think is really it
4: I think that's the secret to a happy life, if I'm honest. Yeah. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. I think m- minimizing regret, eradicating it if you can, and seizing enthusiasm where you find yourself is is it.
5: Yeah. And so. as much play as possible.
4: Yeah. Play is I know I saw that in your documentary, actually, where you're saying, I want to have a life full of play. Mm. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. That and... Cut chopping up oranges with your kids.
5: Chopping up oranges. (laughs) Actually, I'm allergic to oranges. You're not.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. It could be any other fruit. Look, it's just—it's a metaphor. (laughs) It's a metaphor. Come on. (laughs) What a lovely woman Hannah Fry is. I really enjoyed her company. And if I'm completely honest, she's a very good example of when I book a guest with a slight ulterior motive of them becoming my friend. So, Hannah, if you're listening to this, I hope I didn't come across too strong. But I just just always had a feeling we'd get along. So, yeah, it was a pleasure. And, yeah, I loved our chat. And actually, I really loved the idea of regret minimization. I think maybe my brain works that way, too. I just didn't. It, like title it that way but I do think you have to trust in who you were at the moment you made decisions I think dealing with regret long term is a very tricky emotion because it's a very difficult one to resolve so you've got to trust yourself that how you felt in the moment you would choose the same make the same choices and make the same decisions as if you were it was, you know happening again now I think you have to trust that otherwise you go loopy loo wouldn't you um and I've realised while I'm sat here talking to you, um, so I'm in my house, and then outside the window is my garden, and beyond that there's trees, and then there's a little road, and then there's a park. And I can hear my children shouting in the park as I'm talking to you. I think, have you ever had... I, when I came back from holiday a couple of years back, we were the noisiest family where we were staying. I got all my kids hearing tested. I was like, maybe they're just not a bit hard of hearing, and that's why they're so loud. They were all fine with their hearing. They're just noisy. Um Noisier than your average. Uh, And (laughs) the other exciting thing I've got happening, um, I realised, is my album is out really soon. My album is out two weeks this Friday, so that's June the 2nd. I can't wait. It's like the longest-running thing, but I'm so proud of this record, and I really love it, and it feels very personal, but also very big and bold and shiny, and I just... Oh, it's just going to be so lovely. I can't wait to see it. I still haven't seen a finished version... I've done it in cassette and in vinyl and CD, and I can't wait to see the artwork. I'm so happy to do vinyl. When I was with Universal Records, we never did vinyl, and now since I've done Wonderlust and Familia and Song Diaries and Songs in the Kitchen Disco and this one, Hannah, I've made sure they're all in vinyl. It's gorgeous. Plus, you get to do fun ones where you make them a different colour and that kind of thing. Yeah, really lovely. I can't wait for you to hear it. And actually, it's good timing because the song is, the songs on the album suit the sunshine. I feel like they're all about spring and summer. So, yeah, it's good timing that the blossom is out and the sun's shining and it's all feeling really green and lush everywhere. It's a lot easier, isn't it, to get out of bed in the morning. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the main stuff going on. Oh, well, I have got a nice thing next weekend. I'm going to do a festival in Mexico. That would be cool. Guadalajara. Can't wait for that either. So yeah, it's all systems go and I'm feeling, yeah, in a good spot with it all because I'm feeling quite energised. So let's see if I'm in the same mood next week. (laughs) It's so easy to take a back step with the energy levels. Um, Anyway, in the meantime, have a lovely week. Thank you very much for finding me and my guest again here. Thank you to my producer, Claire Jones, to Richard Jones, no relation, for... um, editing the podcast for Ella May for doing her beautiful artwork for Hannah Fry for her time and her conversation with me but obviously most of all for you you lent me your ears and I appreciate it all right see you soon lots love Bye.